Good morning, everybody, and welcome to Overeaters Anonymous, a Vision for You speakers meeting. My name is Leah, and I'm a recovered compulsive overeater. Today is Sunday, September 29, 2013. The share ID number for Friday's meeting, September 27th, is 5218. That's 5218. OA Preamble. Overeaters Anonymous is a fellowship of individuals who, through shared experience, strength, and hope, are recovering from compulsive overeating. We welcome everyone who wants to stop eating compulsively. There are no dues or fees for members. We are self-supporting through our own contributions, neither soliciting nor accepting outside donations. OA is not affiliated with any public or private organization, political movement, ideology, or religious doctrine. We take no position on outside issues. This meeting's primary purpose is to abstain, to recover from compulsive overeating, and to carry this message of recovery to those who still suffer. Our sole purpose, OA's fifth tradition states, each group has but one primary purpose, to carry its message to the compulsive overeater who still suffers. At a Vision for You Big Book study, our message is that people who suffer from compulsive overeating can recover through abstinence and the practice of the 12 steps and 12 traditions of Overeaters Anonymous. And I will now call on Philomena to read the 12 steps. Thank you, Leah. Good morning, everyone. My name is Philomena, a recovered compulsive overeater from South Jersey. The 12 steps. One. We admit it we were powerless over food, that our lives had become unmanageable. Two, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Three, made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. Four, made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. Five, admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. Six, we're entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. Seven, humbly asked him to remove our shortcomings. Eight, made a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. Nine, made direct amends to such people wherever possible except when to do so would injure them or others. Ten, continued to take personal inventory and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. Eleven, sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood him, praying only for knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. And twelve, having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to compulsive readers and to practice these principles in all our affairs. Thank you. Thank you. I will now call on Melanie to read the Twelve Traditions, please. Good morning. My name is Melanie. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater in Oregon. The Twelve Traditions. One, our common welfare should come first. Personal recovery depends upon OA unity. Two, for our group purpose, there is but one ultimate authority, a loving God as he may express himself in our group conscience. Our leaders are but trusted servants. They do not govern. Three, the only requirement for OA membership is a desire to stop eating compulsively. Four, each group should be autonomous 
except in matters affecting other groups or OA as a whole. Five, each group has but one primary purpose, to carry its message to the compulsive overeater who so suffers. Six, an OA group ought never endorse, finance, or lend the OA name to any related facility or outside enterprise. Thus, problems of money, property, and prestige divert us from our primary purpose. Seven, every OA group ought to be fully self-supporting, declining outside contributions. Eight, Overeaters Anonymous should remain forever non-professional, but our service centers may employ special workers. Nine, OA as such ought never be organized, but we may create service boards or committees directly responsible to those they serve. Ten, Overeaters Anonymous has no opinion on outside issues. Hence, the OA name ought never be drawn into public controversy. Eleven, our public relations policy is based on attraction rather than promotion. We need always maintain personal anonymity at the level of press, radio, film, television, and other public media of communication. Twelve, anonymity is the spiritual foundation of all these traditions, ever reminding us to place principles before personality. Yes. Thank you. Our whole journey through the steps takes us to step 12. Step 12 states, having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to compulsive overeaters and to practice these principles in all our affairs. Here this morning to carry this message of recovery and share her experience, strength, and hope with us is Chaya from Texas. Good morning to you, Chaya. Good morning. Can you hear me okay? Yes. Okay, great. All right. Good morning, everybody. Um, My name is Chaya, and I am a very grateful, recovered, compulsive eater and bulimic, and I do reside in Dallas, Texas for today, and I want to thank Leah for inviting me to share my story today. I, um, I consider it an incredible privilege to um, be invited to speak on this line, and I'm truly humbled. And I just want to say that anything I say is my experience and my opinion, unless I read it from the book, in which case it is the experience of the first 100 alcoholics who recovered. Um, so if I say anything that does not uh, match with what the book says. Um, that is, that is, uh, to my, uh, that's just my story, my my um, experience, and um, certainly not um, necessarily the experience of of the those who recovered through this process. Um, so it says in, um, and I want to welcome anyone who's new. Please, 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 if you're new, welcome, welcome, welcome. Um, it takes a lot of courage to dial that phone or show up at that meeting. I remember what it was like for me when I went to my first OA meeting and um, I wanted to run out the door and um, and uh, it didn't make a whole lot of sense, but what I encourage you to do is just have an open mind and come back. Um, and if, if, we, if you do have this um, uh, problem, we do have a solution. So I'm referring to um, what we fondly call the big book, 
which is um, the book called Alcoholics Anonymous, which was written um, to disseminate the information. It was before the information age, right, where everything is, you know, instantaneous on the Internet and the phone, um, you know, back in the 30s when we didn't have that. Um, they wanted to be able to spread the message of recovery and help people get get the recovery message so that people could recover, and they wrote this book with the instructions. So that's what I'm referring to, and it's fondly known as the big book. But it says in, in Chapter 5, which is way after, um, you know, hopefully this is not the first chapter you opened up <laughs> when you get here, but it does say um, our in the second paragraph, our stories disclose in a general way what we what we used to be like, what happens, and we what we are like now. A lot of times I've heard in meetings, you know, what it used to be like, what happened, and what it's like now. But I'm supposed to share with you what I used to be like, what happens, and what I'm like now. Um, so what I used to be like is, um, you know, I really do believe that I was I was born a compulsive eater. I was born with the with the uh, temperament, the the uh, genetic makeup, all the factors that could possibly contribute. Um, I, I do know compulsive eaters that had no genetic history of compulsive eating in their families and no, uh, you know, very easygoing, mild childhood with things going well, no drama, no major drama, what have you. And then at a certain point in their life, either at a young, as a young child or later on, they, you know, were full-fledged into this illness. Um, for me, I feel like I had all the possible makeup. <laughs> um, my father, you know, I come from a line of dieters and compulsive eaters still struggling today. People are still struggling today with it. Um, overweight and always on diets up and down and up and down and up and down and then can't lose. Um, I, uh, on both sides of my family, I have, my father died when I was a baby. I was born, um, my mother was 24. She had a four-year-old daughter. She had me. I was born in March. My father was diagnosed with cancer in April, and he died in September, October, excuse me. And um, and that was 46 years ago. I'm 46. So, you know, you can imagine being born and, you know, five weeks into your birth, your, your father's diagnosed with terminal cancer and, you know, what those months were like. And you know, I have um, sensations when I think about it of, you know, being passed around and being fed and just, you know, it was, it was just, it was, it was a lot of drama going on, you know, life, life happens kind of stuff. And um, I also was, you know, known, I used to, interestingly enough, I am a recovered bulimic, thank God, but I guess I was predisposed to that. You know, my nickname apparently when I was a baby was cheesy because I would just throw up all the time. I would eat and throw up. I would overeat, I guess, and then throw up. Um, and uh, so I, I really do believe that I had this, 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 the genetic makeup, the temperament of, you know, wanting to fill uh, you know, the, the physical the physical manifestation when I ate certain foods, I wanted more of them, which I'll speak about in a little bit. And then also the life events that would um, precipitate, you know, uh, drama and, and the need to soothe. Um, so I, um, you know, what I was, I was a pretty happy kid in a lot of ways. I was um, chubby. Um, I'm sure there's going to be, a, you know, when I'm in a live meeting, I see a lot of heads nod when I say this. I'm sure I'm going to be a lot of heads nodding on the phone here when I say, you know, what I heard a lot from my family and teachers and my family, you know, friends of my mom would say, 
you have such a pretty face if you would only lose weight. You know, and um, I'll tell you, that doesn't feel very good. <laughs> that doesn't make you feel good. That doesn't make you want to go out and, you know, lose weight. If you're just a pretty, if you're, you're oh, it's just, oh, you have this potential, but, but you're just not there. And that, I heard that a lot. And so there was a lot of, you know, there was a lot of focus on weight and a lot of focus on food. I remember I had to go to the chubby department. Um, that was, you know, we had to go to a special store named Murray's to get the chubby department. I went to a private school when I was younger. Um, and so I didn't get a lot of, um, it was a small private school. It was a, um, although I was not observant in my religion at all, it was a school um, based on my religion. And because I guess it was a smaller school and there was some value system being instilled, there was, I don't remember being made fun of in school. Um, but in the fourth grade, um, when my sister was in seventh grade and I was in fourth grade, we we said that we wanted to go to um, public school. And I went to public school, and there the I think there was some there must have been some before that because I had girls on my block that um, you know I had one girl that was um, would kind of be mean to me, um, but that didn't really start until I went to public school and I went to hard public school, and all I wanted was to fit in. Um, I really wanted to fit in. I even, you know, wanted a, I just wanted to be part of. And I, I was, when I went to public school, they put me in. At that time in New York, they would divide the classes based on, like, your intellectual, you know, I guess how you tested or whatever. So there were these gifted classes. The first two classes were gifted, and then they kind of went, you know, down from there. And I wasn't in the gifted class because it was my first year in public school, so they didn't put me in the gifted class. They put me, like, in the next class. And I and I made a really good friend and became friends with her. And these girls that were in the gifted class, one of them lived on my block. And they, they I just wanted to be part of her, their group. And they, they knew, she knew how to get to me. And so I got made fun of a lot for my weight, even though I wasn't, like, obese. I wasn't morbidly obese. I was a chubby kid, you know. And they... Um, really, really, really made fun of me for my weight. And it was very, very painful and very, very difficult. And um, in fact, I remember them taking my friend away from me and saying, you know, um, Beth, you can be in our skinny committee, um, you know, but Chaya can't be in our skinny committee. At that time, I went for, until a very, very short time ago, I went as my um American name, which was Dana. Um, I recently took on my given name, which is Haya, which I'll speak about at the end. But so they say Dana can't be in our skinny community, but you can be in our skinny committee. And that was like, you know, what it felt like. And I remember I also went on my first diet, my first real diet around the fourth grade. My grandmother took me to a diet that was like a Weight Watchers place. I think it was called Way of Life or Way In. I mean, I was, I was, I remember she took me. And um, they sold food, you know, they sold like different um, ice creams and cakes. And, you know, I'm going to, I may mention food here or there. I, I once heard a, a woman with, with a gazillion years of abstinence and recovered because uh, they're not always one and the same. And, you know, she said, look, if I mention a food and it's going to send you out to eat, you, you probably were going to go eat anyway. So I'm not going to step, I'm not going to, you know, make it, I'm, I'll do my best to be sensitive, but I'm, um, the big book says we can go anywhere, <laughs> and so I think we can hear anything too. So, 
Anyway, I remember they, they had these diet ice creams and they came in a pack of four and like no one told me that, you know, one was a serving. I mean, I would eat, I mean, I guess I intuitively knew one was a serving, but I couldn't stop at one. And that was the first ominous warning, like the big book says, Bill Wilson, he had the, the founder of AA, you know, when, he, when we read his story, Bill's story, you know, it says, ominous warning, I failed to heed. Like there was this little you know, warning, hey, if you can't stop at one ice cream, maybe there's an issue here. But, if, you know, I didn't know any better at the time. But I went to Way of Life. I went to Weigh In. I went to Ideal Weight. I went to a sleepaway camp. I think I went to one or I was supposed to go to one. Um, I went to all these different, you know, things, the liquid diet, the Scarsdale diet, the grapefruit diet, all those diets. My mother was on these diets. I love my mother. My mother and I are extremely close today. She might be listening. I don't know. Um, but you know, we kind of did this diet thing together and, um, you know, I did all the things that I know a lot of you did. I wore less clothes the next week so that I would weigh less or, you know, I would cheat somewhere during the week and then I would, you know, not eat the day that I was going to get weighed or I wouldn't wear as much jewelry or it was just, I just was playing games with the scale and it was, it was, you know, at an early age and it, it, it just kept going on and on and on. Um, when I started to develop, um, and I, I did, I was also very sensitive, and these, you know, I, I had a very, very difficult time. I kept, um, I kept going back, wishing that it would be different when it came to, like, these girls wanting, and they, they tortured me. I mean, it really was, it was, it was bullying, but we didn't call it bullying back then, but I was really bullied, and um, and my, my children, no, I have five children, and they know I have zero tolerance for it because I tell them what it felt like. And um, thank God, you know, we, we, um, we live a different lifestyle than the, the way that, you know, those kids treated me. Um, I remember at one point I was around the time I started developing, um, which, you know, naturally my body was changing. We went to a doctor, Dr. Gazzini on, on Long Island, and he weighed me and uh, he put me on a very strict diet and amino acid supplements. And, um, you know, I lost weight, and I remember I stayed on this diet, and I lost weight, and then I remember going to, like, Burger King or something and, and just that, that, trying to eat it without the bread, and I remember just all this insanity around it, and um, it was a very confusing time. My body was changing. I, all this pressure to look good. At this time, I, um, I found my singing voice. I was involved in plays in school, and that was, like, a gift, and I really feel like God, although I did not have a connection uh, that I was aware of with God at the time. I do believe that it was my spirit. It was it was that spirituality inside of me, that singing voice that saved me to a large degree and put me kind of in a new category in school. Um, I skipped a year. I was very young. I started early uh, school and I skipped eighth grade and I went into high school early and I was kind of with a whole new group of people and with, with the plays and, and things like that. And I was... Um, you know, when it, and I, and it was a challenging time. I was, I got some attention from, a little bit of attention from boys and my body was changing and I was just in a whole new realm, but I was very, very, very consumed with my weight, with eating, with dieting. And at this time, my bulimia set in as well. Um, and my thinking, you know, it, it talks about um, a lot, you know, this is a, this is a problem a, a physical problem and a mental obsession. It's a, a eating, I had an eating problem and a thinking problem. And this 
uh, is a very, very key to my story and, and understanding the way I behaved even early on before the food, you know, and the, the bulimia and the disease was chasing me and I was a slave to it. Although I, I really believe I was always a slave to it, but, you know, more and more enslaved. Um, it, my thinking, even as a young person, was really off um, in terms of the way I conducted myself and the way I manipulated situations. Um, I remember in school I was involved in this play, and I, you know, I, I was, we would make up our own plays, and we would base, like, we would use songs that were, you know, Broadway songs and pop songs, and we would write our own lyrics to it based on the play that we wrote. And I wasn't on the script committee, but I was on the lyrics committee. And I figured that if I was the lyrics chairman, then I would be in charge of picking the songs that we would use. And so what I did is I picked the songs that I knew I could sing best so that it would be obvious that I would be the one that would have the lead. And needless to say, I had a lot of amends to make <laughs> when um, I first went through the steps because I realized the way I conducted myself. So I had this compulsive eater slash alcoholic, um, the way the book describes, you know, the book is talking about alcoholics, but this behavior, this thinking of, you know, this grandiosity, this control that, that I had even then. Um, but around the time of high school, I did get a boyfriend. The bulimia started. And that really, I believe, is, a, is another layer of this disease. Not everybody uh, is uh, blessed with uh, the bulimia. It is not fun. It is not glamorous at all. And it really doesn't work very well. Um, it did not really, um, it, 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 you know, you think that you're, for those of you that don't know what bulimia is, it, the, the old definition was just, you know, purging in response to eating, but it took on many other manifestations, diuretics, uh, it was um, exercising in response to eating, um, purging, throwing up, laxatives. I did it all. And, um, you know, I'll tell you, you think that, at least my experience was, and I've worked with a lot of bulimics over the years, that you, you think that you're doing it to keep your weight down, but it really takes a life onto its own. At a certain point in my bulimia, and I have to speak about this because this is my story, um, at a certain part of my bulimia, I didn't know if I was eating to throw up or throwing up to eat. I didn't know if I was throwing up so I could make more room in my stomach to eat or if I was eating so that I can go have that experience of, of purging. The purging was a sense of control for me. I felt out of control in a lot of ways, and this was a way for me to control. It was a way for me to say, you know what? You can say whatever you want to me. You can do whatever you want to me. You can treat me however you want. But you know what? I'm going to go into the bathroom. I'm going to lock the door, turn on the water, and I'm going to throw up. And there's nothing you can do about it. And that's really what it felt like um, for me. So I was very much in the cycle. I had a boyfriend in, in high school. And I mean, this poor guy, I mean, I just tortured him because I was either on a diet, in which case I was impossible to be around because I was, I was angry that I had to be on a diet, or I was binging, in which case I hated myself and I was mad because I was binging. You know, so I was either, I was always either running towards the food or running away from the food. I was never in a place of neutrality, 
which we do speak about and which I have experienced and I do experience as a result of being um, the, the working the, the program of recovery that's written in this book, which I'll speak about in terms of what happened um, in that neutrality. So I was always either on a diet or breaking a diet. I was either running towards the food or running away from the food. I was either gaining weight or losing weight. Very rarely would I stabilize at a weight. Um, I think, you know, I stay, you know, I always say, like, I was on my way to anorexic at one point, but I never stayed there because then I just went up. And I do not consider myself anorexic as another layer of this disease it, it has completely uh very uh, specific um uh um things that define it and 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 the way it manifests itself and i'm grateful that i didn't have that but i do know many people that have recovered from anorexia it's just different nuances of of the disease different layers of it so um i um I'll skip up, and this just kind of went on. People, this just went on and on and on and on. And um, it was, um, I remember I went to college very young. I was 16 when I went to college. And um, I went to a school where uh, basically it was a party school. I went to a relatively local school where I can get home in two hours. I was very young. I really didn't belong going away to college. I really should have been home. Um, and it was, you know, people partied, drank, and I drank the way kids in college drank. And I learned that I could drink publicly the way I wanted to eat. I couldn't eat publicly the way I really wanted to eat. I did actually room with a bunch of girls that were, I'm just thinking of this now, I haven't thought about this in years, that were bulimics. So we used to like like share stories about throwing up and help each other figure out ways to throw up. It was really sick. Um, but I was on a meal plan and I just, I, it was so out of control. I just, it was so out of control being on a meal plan in college. And I mean, all you can eat and it was just out of control. I did not understand at that time, which I do now, that I was in the grip of a physical allergy uh, and a mental obsession. There are two pieces to this disease. If you are a compulsive eater, we will define it shortly. Um, I didn't understand that I was in the grips of that. I thought if I just had control, I could, you know, I should be able to have it. You know, that's what I was always told. If you, you know, just have control, have control, get a, get a hold of yourself, get control. I didn't understand that when I ate, those foods, I think about it very specifically, you know, they had like granola cereal at the cereal bar and, the, and I can just continue eating it and eating, eating it because it's loaded with sugar and, um, you know, ma masquerading as a healthy food, but it was, it was very, um, just kept me in that, in that, plus alcohol, you know, we were always drinking Thursday night, we started drinking, you know, we drank Thursday night, nobody had classes on Friday because you went out partying Thursday night and so Thursday night, Friday night, Saturday, you know, Sunday you kind of recovered and Monday you were back to school. So um, the alcohol breaks down exactly like sugar. So um, I constantly had that, that um, sugar in my system. And so it was just nearly impossible to get out from under. So college was a very bumpy ride for me. I, um, I just didn't, you know, there was, I'm not going to go into all the details of it, but it was very difficult physically. Um, it was very confusing, just mature-wise, um, and um, and it was I was being I was I was 
you know, like in Bill Wilson's story and, you know, in Bill's story, he talks about how he invited the alcohol in and then it starts following him and it's like coming up behind him and then he becomes a slave to it. And that's really what happened to me with food. You know, I ate food when I was young because it felt good and it soothed me. And then at a certain point, it started the bulimia and the, and the eating and the binging and the purging and the whole cycle was, was following me and then I was a slave to it. And I remember in college, I transferred to a different college, um, a small college across the country, away from family. So I really could find myself. I really feel like God put me there. And that is where I started to spiral down even further. Um, but I, I, you know, this, this is kind of, this is what happened to me. So I remember in the summer, I just lost my thought for a second, so I'm just going to skip to this part. In the summer of 1987, I went on a diet. I came home from college, and I went to this place. Um, I can't remember the name of it. And uh, it was like a weight loss place, and I didn't tell my mother. I didn't tell anybody. I just went and I was going to do this. And I went on a diet, and I lived at the gym. I was totally bulimic to, in terms of exercise. I literally lived at the gym. If you wanted to see me, you had to meet me at the gym. I was at the gym many, many hours a day. I think I was still vomiting during that summer, but I can't even remember. It was crazy. I became very thin. Um, I was tan. I remember going on the beach in a very, very, very skimpy bikini, and um, there was this part of me that felt like I had arrived and part of me that felt like I was nothing because I was a shell. And this actually was... um, was confirmed when I was I was flying back to college and I was in an airport making a connection and I was wearing a red dress sleeveless dress that was um it was a very pretty dress it was sleeveless and it came you know down to my knees and and I was very very tan and I was 18 years old and a man who must have been in his 40s you know, I'm 46 now, but I mean, you know, way older than me, walked by me and like brushed against my shoulder. And I heard him say, kind of whisper in my ear, now I know there's a God. Meaning here was this gorgeous woman, young woman, now I know there's a God. And I felt at that moment, like you could blow, blow on me, go, and I would have tipped over because there was nothing inside of me, nothing. I was a shell. I had arrived at this body that I thought was utopia, and I was nothing on the inside. And I got to college, and it was spiral from there. I could not maintain. In fact, I wasn't taking enough classes because I had to figure out a way to exercise enough so that I could stay this weight. I was trying, you know, I was weighing myself. I was an RA, a resident assistant, so I had keys to the nurse's office and I would weigh myself and I was trying to get the meal plan to make food for me that I could, it was totally spinning out of control. And within, you know, a few months period, I was back up to my weight and climbing and climbing and climbing. And I was trying to do diets and I had a roommate that was overweight and we were always trying to do all sorts of different things. And it was really out of control. My roommate situation was out of control. My college situation was out of control. I was, um, it was just, it was out of control. I was, my bulimia was high, at an all-time high. 
you know, I was drinking with the people socially, I was eating privately, I was throwing up, I was taking diuretics, laxatives, I didn't know what to do. I went to a therapist, and um, actually I went to a, to a doctor for a, a, a checkup, and um, I... I was very open about my bulimia, even though I was like very much into it. I was I was open open with it as if I wasn't doing it anymore. I would counsel other women about, other girls about it, you know, as if I wasn't doing it. I was teaching aerobics at school. I was trying, you know, I was exercising all the time, and I went to this doctor for whatever visit, and she said to me, you know, if you ever if you ever find that you need some help, you know, here's the name of a therapist, and so I I was so spinning out of control that shortly after I was throwing up in every bathroom in my in my in the hall that I was a resident assistant, you know, in the dorm, I was I was eating tons and tons of popcorn at the um, you know when I was on duty. Everybody knew where my room was on the floor because I always had the popcorn machine going. Popcorn is a binge food for me. I, I I enormous amounts of air popcorn and then would throw it up. And anyway, I went to my resident director and I said I need help. And we went to this therapist. She took me and I went. And this therapist. Um, did not believe in Overeaters Anonymous. She, her, her theory was make friends with the cookie, make friends with the food. Now, for someone who doesn't have the allergy of the body, that might work because you can go home and get peace with having one or two cookies. But I didn't know that I had a physical allergy. So when I would go home and I would try to eat one cookie, or two cookies, I didn't understand why I couldn't, I would be thinking about the cookies. And this was, this started to, um, I didn't understand. It was very, very, very frustrating. I did gain a lot of insights in terms of, you know, I, I was very cathartic. I realized, I remember saying to my sister, oh, that's it. It's because our father died that I have an eating problem and I'm bulimic. That's what it is. It's because, you know, there's a statistic that women who are, girls who are bulimic had fathers who left them, you know. And I thought, that'll be it, and I won't throw up anymore, and I won't have a food problem anymore. But guess what? That didn't help. Yes, was cathartic, and I went through a grieving process, and I started to connect with, you know, with, with this thing that I, you know, this person I never taught, you know, never had any connection with at all because he died when I was a baby, and I realized that I had feelings about it. But it didn't solve my eating problem. It didn't solve my food problem. Um... So it still was was out of control. But so what happened was she did go to, she did tell me about uh, adult ACOA. And um, I had a boyfriend in college who I thought was alcoholic. And I went to an Al-Anon meeting. And um, I remember at the Al-Anon meeting, there was a woman there. I, I must have been talking about my, my food issue. And she said, and she was very, 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 very overweight. And she said, well, I go to Overeaters Anonymous and I eat three meals a day, nothing in between, one day at a time. And I thought, that's fine for you, but I don't want what you have. And, um, you know, it was a judgment. I don't know if she was 500 pounds and she went down to 300 pounds. I don't know. I just know that I was not open at the moment. But what happened was my food was so out of control that I had to be willing to go to an away meeting because I didn't know what to do anymore. And I remember picking up the phone one day. I was, I was still living in Oregon where I went to college. I kind of graduated. I was working temp jobs and I knew enough to know that I couldn't go back to Brooklyn, that I would be eating and it would just be out of control if I were there. But, oh, I skipped one part, which is that I, um, I did, um, I would describe bulimia as alcoholism, even though I didn't know what alcoholism really was. I felt like it was this monster that took over me 
and that's how I would describe it. It was like a monster that took over me. And, um, oh, I didn't skip the part. What happened was I went to OA. I finally went to an OA meeting, and um, I just listened. And this was in 1987 when they did away with, like, addressing that we need to have, like, get the food out of the way. Um, and so they kind of, like, did away with having some kind of structure to your food, and so it was kind of whatever. And um, so it was very confusing. But I did hear women in OA talk about um, being also sober, and that kind of perked me up because I knew that, like, I always got into trouble when I was drinking. Either I got drunk and ended up, you know, like, throwing up on the bathroom floor in my dorm, or I ended up going home and eating and eating and eating and eating and eating. And so um, I went to some AA meetings, which was really great because when I thought, well, I'm not going to drink, I stopped vomiting. There was something of the connection between the drinking and the bulimia. I don't exactly understand it, but that's just part of my story. And I'm grateful that I got to AA meetings for many years. I went to AA meetings and worked the steps in AA because it gave me a huge foundation in the big book, which later would prove to be my salvation for Overeaters Anonymous. Um, I went to, um, so I started going to OA meetings. I went mainly to AA meetings. OA, I went to some OA meetings. I started to learn about maybe some of the addictive substances, but it was very wishy-washy and people, I didn't hear people working the steps. Maybe they were, but it wasn't what I was being introduced to. So my, my experience was mainly in, in, the, in AA, and I did go through the 12 steps in AA, and I did um, experience a lot of changes. In OA, I, I was able to find a group in OA that, uh, you know, first the idea of just eating some meals were huge to me and identifying certain foods. But over the years, and this is what I want to speak about what had happened to me, is over the years I had been in different factions of OA, different groups in OA that were trying to find ways to eat that would um, put the, I guess, put the food in its place. And um, I experienced weight loss, um, but I didn't experience freedom. I mean, I remember when I first lost my weight in, um, in a group in OA. This was many, you know, this was like 19 years ago. Um, I never left OA. I was always in OA, but I, it was OA how at the time, different than some of the how that is today. But, um, you know, I drank tons and tons and tons and tons and tons of diet soda. I mean, I was like a laboratory rat. I, I drank so much diet soda and used so many sweetener packets. A friend of mine said to me, you're like a laboratory rat. You know, so it wasn't – I. And I worked the steps not exactly out of the big book. It was like a lot of questions and like 170 questions from an inventory, I remember. And so, but so the, and there was a lot of um, control around the food, but I did gain a lot of insights and, and some recovery from some of the process that I went through. And then I went out of the country and I um, started some meetings there and, and um, you know, and I was in a thin body, but I was still very much managed by the food. And we were away for a year, and then we came back to the States, and there weren't any groups like that where I lived, and there were just regular OA meetings. And I just kept feeling like like at any time I could, I might, because I wasn't steeped in the steps and in the book. There was always, it was always this kind of managed the food and some meetings. And that was really the um, focus was, was meetings and food, food and meetings, food and meetings, and managing the food and the meetings. And I learned that there were certain substances that I couldn't eat. I knew I couldn't eat sugar, and I knew I couldn't eat those sugar packets anymore. And, um, and I certainly knew I couldn't eat white flour. That is not everybody. That is me. 
And um, for many years, you know, so I knew those certain things. So I was out of the physical allergy with those, but there were still certain behaviors that I didn't really fully understand were, were perpetuating the, the compulsion and, and certain nuances to the food that were perpetuating the compulsion. But most importantly, um, was it was more the mental obsession that wasn't taken away. So what happened to me was over the last eight years, I was involved um, with a, um, a community in a way that somehow along the way became more and more and more food focused and less and less and less program of recovery focused. And this is just my experience. I'm just speaking from my experience. I do not profess this as everybody's, and I don't think there's only one way that things can be done. I can just share with you what worked for me. Um, and the more and more focused it was on controlling food, and the less and less it was on actually getting recovered from this, the, 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 the thinking, the mental part, the, the more and more crazy I felt. And um, I have family members that will attest to you, you know, that, I mean, my aunt, who I love dearly, and, you know, said to me, you're like, she just said to me, you have like this franticness about you. And mind you, what's so interesting is that I, because I knew about the big book and because I had had experience about 10 years ago, I went in, in AA, a woman took me through the book um, word for word, and we went through the book together, and it was transforming in a lot of ways, except what kept coming up was my food stuff. And she was an alcoholic. She was, she was not a compulsive eater. And that's what kept coming up for me. And so what I didn't understand until last year was that I never fully, fully, fully understood the doctor's opinion from, which is a chapter in our, in our book, which explains the, the physical allergy and then more about alcoholism, explaining the mental obsession. I never fully understood the problem. <laughs> if you don't understand a problem, it's very hard to A, know what the solution is, and B, understand how to get the solution. So I thought that weight was the, you know, like the goal was to, okay, not be obsessed with food and be thin. Um, but I still was obsessed. I was either obsessed with my food or your food. You know, I was sponsoring people, and I was obsessed with their food, <laughs> you know, what they were eating. It was a lot of control. But I did, you know, take women through the big book in OA, um, and there was a lot of wonderful growth that came from it, but there was what the missing element was, was really fully understanding that it wasn't about me telling you uh, what you could and couldn't eat or every one of us following the same exact food plan that was the determination because what, what happened was is that I was eating foods that maybe you know, someone told me the food plan that I should eat, and so that I was eating foods that maybe were addictive substances for me, but not addictive substances for you. Or maybe they were addictive substances for you, but they weren't for me. You know, so there was all this focus on the food and, and not on the, on the program of recovery. And the, more, the farther and farther to where um, the year before last, I was sponsoring a woman for an entire year, and I never took her through the set. And it was all about managing the food and going to meetings. And um, so what happened to me was um, last summer I was feeling very, I remember speaking to a therapist and saying, um, I, um, I really don't have a lot of faith in the 12 steps. And that was scary to me because that for the last 25 years has been something that I knew was always there. And, but I had gotten so far away from it 
that I really felt like maybe they don't work. And, um, you know, I had a relationship with God. I, I developed one through the years, you know, through my experience with the steps I did. I, I actually did what the big book says, and um, I'm one of those, you know, the big book does talk about that they do, uh, while we are not a religious program whatsoever at all, at all, at all, um, you do not have to believe in any specific entity, deity, anything. Um, but it's but it's a natural thing for people, you know, that people may connect with religion. The big book says that many people go back to their religion, and so I did. That is an experience that I had as a result of connecting to a power greater than myself in the beginning of my program, um, in the beginning years. You know, I've been in program many, many years, um, and always stayed. You know, so I did develop a relationship with God, and that did lead me back to my religion. Um, which I'm very grateful for, and it's extremely um, cohesive with with the 12-step program. Um, there's nothing in the 12 steps that, that conflicts with my religion, which is beautiful. And, um, and uh, so I, I knew, you know, I had had an experience with God, and so I, I really felt like, you know, I'm, I, I must have called out to God and said, you know, I, I'm, God, I'm so afraid that, this isn't working, or that what if the steps aren't? I really was afraid that the steps that that I did I couldn't even believe in the steps anymore. And just then, I remember calling a friend um, in program, my friend Yuris, and she. I said to her, and these are the words that came out of my mouth: "I don't feel recovered. I'm in a thin body, but I don't feel recovered." I used those words, and she said to me. I must tell you about this meeting that um, I recently started going to, and it was this meeting, the A Vision for You meeting, which is an Overeaters Anonymous meeting that dedicates itself to studying our big book. It's not a program in and of itself. It is a meeting, an OA meeting, that studies our literature, the big book, the Alcoholics Anonymous book. And I went to the meeting the very next morning, or maybe even that afternoon I listened to the recording. I don't remember. I took a deep breath, a sigh of relief. I said, I'm home. I called my sponsor, who's a good friend of mine, um, who I love, and, you know, and she was just trying to manage my food for two years, you know, which my food wasn't, it wasn't like I was out of control. It just wasn't like exactly following the exact, you know, if you had one ounce over and this, and it was, it was just so focused on, ounce, you know, it was just so food focused. There was nothing else. I love her. I called her. I said, I love you. I thank you for everything. I had been saying things like, I feel like I need to do the steps. I feel like I need to do the steps. And um, so I said to her, I found a meeting that focuses on the steps, and this is what I need. I want to thank you for everything, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to find someone to work with. And so I started making phone calls. Ironically, I spoke with a woman who I used to sponsor, um, who felt the same way I felt, which was, you know, it got her so far, but she, didn't, she wasn't recovered. And she had met a woman who, um, who uh, at, a, at a convention who took her through the steps, and she's now a recovered person. And I said to her, can you help me? And she said, you know what, I'm, I'm really backed up with working with people, but let me give you the phone number of somebody. I met this woman once, and, um, you know, maybe she can help you. And I called this woman, and I spoke with her. She had had a similar experience. She was much, much more new to OA than I was, but had a similar experience with um, a community in OA. And... I said to her, will you help me? And she said, yes. And she took me through the steps in a very, uh, at, a, at a pace, which I do believe the book um, does recommend. In the, in the back of the big book, it does, in, in the, the, um, on page 568, uh, it says, or 567, in 
spiritual experience, it says, um, among our rapidly growing membership of thousands of alcoholics, such transformation, um, though frequent, are by no means the rule. Most of our experiences are what we call this, okay, da, da, da. It says, um, quite often friends of the newcomer are aware of the difference long before he is himself. He finally realizes that he has undergone a profound alteration in his reaction to life, that such a change could hardly have been brought about by himself alone. Here, what often takes place in a few months could seldom have been accomplished by years of self-discipline. This is where in the book it tells me that this is a process that happens very quickly, maybe even in a few months not over the process of years. I've heard people say I do a step a year, you know, or it takes me two years to do a fourth step. I needed to get to the 10th step ASAP because what happened to me was I understood that when the food went down in step one, we redefined. I went to a professional defined. I, I'm a believer in that. Just, you know, I don't know what's best as a, as a layman, what's best for, I happen to do this professionally also, which is a, which I keep separate. But you know, I, as a layman, I don't know what's right for you, what your particular problem is. You know, that you work out with an OA, an OA knowledgeable person that can, whether it's a person in OA or a professional that, that can, you can work with to find out what is my addictive substance. I need to find out what were my alcohol. You know, alcohol is alcohol. We don't, doctor's opinion tells us we must abstain from alcohol if you're an alcoholic. Okay? But if you're a compulsive eater, we have to eat. So what are my alcoholic foods? What are the foods or food behaviors, for that matter, that when I... Chaya star one to unmute. Okay. Hi. Can you hear me? Because I just had something talking to me. Yes. Okay, great. So all of a sudden it started talking to me. Um, so I had to identify what were my alcoholic foods and food behaviors. What were the things that they're different than yours. They may not be the same things as yours. There are foods that I can eat that you can't. There are foods that you can eat that I can't. It doesn't define what define what that is. That had to be put aside. I had to concede to my innermost self. These items had to be off my list. Could not eat them anymore. Could not indulge in this anymore. Had to stop. This is what the doctor's opinion told me. But guess what, folks? When I put that food down, I am left with my thinking. And my thinking is the greater aspect of my disease. The thinking that gets me eventually to picking up the food again. Because I will be, the book says, we will be, you know, in the doctor's opinion, other people can put the, can eat this food with impunity. They don't have problem with it. But you know what? I will eventually get restless, irritable, and discontent. I'm paraphrasing because the page is not in front of me. Um, and eventually, here, they are restless, irritable, because to them, their alcoholic life seems the only normal one, right? It says men and women on the bottom of XXVIII in the fourth edition. Men and women drink essentially because they like the effect. I didn't like the taste. I ate it burnt. I ate it raw. I ate it overdone. I ate it undercooked. I ate it after I threw it in the garbage and poured, you know, something 
What's going on? Hi. I keep, I keep getting these beeps uh, or this person talking to me. Um, I ate it because I like the effect it produced, either running towards it or running away from it. And that's why I ate, because of the effect it produced. I also happen to like the taste of certain foods, but I did it because of the effect. When you are, I was a skid row compulsive eater and bulimic. So when I put that food down, I, it was a matter of time before I got restless, irritable, and discontent. I had a friend who said my father was dry for 19 years. Thank God he finally drank because he was a dry drunk. He never changed the thinking. I found out through this meeting that I needed to have a spiritual experience sufficient to bring about recovery. I needed to have a transformation in my thinking, a rearrangement of my thinking, of my personality, of the way I approached life in order for me to meet life head on without having to go back to the food and, and with the ability to be able to be of service to this God of my understanding that I came to know better through this program. So I have a body, I have a problem, I have a physical allergy and a mental obsession. And this meeting, because this meeting focuses on the literature, I'm not hearing the opinions. I'm hearing what, does the, what did these recovered people go through? What did Dr. Silkworth, our medical saint, right, the doctor, explain to us? That I had an allergy of the body and then understanding I'm an obsession of the mind. And the mind is what needed to be changed. The food was a manifestation. Just like a thin body was not an indicator of recovered, I needed to move on and work the program of recovery. And so I did with this sponsor. And I needed to do it quickly because I needed to get to that 10th step before I became restless, irritable, and discontent and would pick up the food eventually. And so what does the 10-step promises tell me? These promises are very often called the hidden promises. Very often, if you've been coming to OA meetings, you probably are familiar with the promises, quote-unquote, which we read, which come after the ninth step, right? Which is that we've see, um, which is, um, if we're painstaking about this phase of our development, those promises we usually read. And these are known as the hidden promises. And I say, yeah, they're hidden. They're hidden because a lot of people never experience them because they don't actually get to this place called recovered. But guess what? They're not hidden when you experience them. These promises that I'm about to share with you are no longer hidden to me. They're on the bottom of page 84. And we've ceased fighting anything or anyone, even alcohol, even the food. For by this time, by what time? By the 10th step, sanity will have returned. We will seldom be interested in liquor or food. If tempted, we recoil from it as from a hot flame. We react sanely and normally. That's what sanely and normally means. When Bill Wilson had a, had a business deal that went bad, his thought went, maybe, you know, a drink. But what did he do? He went instead and started making phone calls to, to find drunks that he could help. That was the sane and normal thing to do. He recoiled. That was reacting sanely. It didn't mean he never would think about it again. It meant that if he did think about it, he could do something different. I'm going to try to wrap up in, in the next couple of minutes. Um, 
we find that this has happened automatically. We see that our attitude toward liquor, toward food, had been given us without any thought or effort on, on our part. It just comes. And I used to think to myself, we just recently read this in the, in the meeting, what do you mean thought or effort on my part? I've been working, I've been working my tush off with these steps. What do you mean? Because you know what? Those steps, those steps were my effort. But God, as I understand God, delivered me. You can't climb yourself out of quicksand. I was in the quicksand. The book talks about quicksand. You must be raised up out of quicksand. You can't get yourself out. It wasn't my actions that brought me to this place. It was being in a place where God could lift me out. And that is because of these steps. Step one, conclusion. I am powerless. Not hopeless. I was just discussing this with the woman I'm taking through the steps this morning. We're seemingly hopeless. It says we've recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. And yes, recovered. The book is very clear. We recover. We recover. That's the objective here, to recover from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. It's seemingly hopeless. It may feel hopeless. It's seemingly. But it is powerless. I am powerless over this problem, over the, over the food. I am. I can't. If once it's in my body, I can't. I, I, I'm, uh, it, it, it takes over. Right? I'm powerless. Powerless. Conclusion. Powerless over food and my life is unmanageable. I have a physical allergy and a mental obsession. Conclusion number two. Came to believe that a power greater than me can restore me to sanity. This is through the chapter uh, We Agnostics and also through more about alcoholism. And Bill's story talks about God as well. So coming to believe that God can lift me out of this quicksand. Whether you understand God or you don't understand God, wherever you are in your, I had to take my current level of agnosticism because obviously I was still holding on. I thought I was in control. I thought I had to do it. So I had to come to believe that God could lift me out and deliver me from this. God as I understand God. Again, it does good orderly direction, group of drunks, whatever you want to call it. It doesn't really matter. Um, God is God. My perception of God changes, but God doesn't. And then conclusion three, made a decision. That's a decision, step three, is a decision. I made a decision to turn my will, my thinking, and my life, my actions, over to the care of God as I understood him. And that decision was a decision to go through the remaining steps. And so that's what we did. We, I made that decision. Because huh, what's the decision? To be doomed an alcoholic death, to be doomed a compulsive eater bulimic death, or to live on a spiritual basis. Those are my choices. So I decided, hmm, maybe live on a spiritual basis might be a little more effective, considering the fact that I have, like, five children, a husband, and, like, I have a life to live here, right? So doomed an alcoholic compulsive eater bulimic death was not going to work anymore. It was killing me. So I did those, I went through the steps. I did step four quickly. Did it just like it's written in the book, exactly as it's written in the book. Um, went through the resentments that were there. My, my sponsor had such a great analogy. She said, you know, when people move, you know, to, she, when people move to Israel, they get, they get these lists that are paid for them. They get paid, you know, if they, 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 you, you move there, you be, be, 
the, your right to citizenship, you're, you're allowed these containers filled with all your stuff. They're called your list. And your list, you, it's for free. And so everybody throws everything they could possibly, they possibly own and will want to own onto that list because the thought is they're never going to have a list again, right? They're never going to get this paid for again. So they have to do it all now. And she said to me, my friend, this is not a list. <laughs> You're going to be doing this the rest of your life. God is not a list. God is always available. If, some, if you miss something, it'll, you'll, you'll find out and you'll do it when you figure out you missed it. You know, so just whatever comes up, that's what you're going to write about. And so that's what I did in step four. I wrote about the resentments, whatever came up. I said, God, please illuminate me. Let me know what I need to write about. Did exactly the four columns. Turned the list back. Did the fourth column. We did the fear inventory, exactly what it said in the book. I did the sex inventory, exactly what I said in the book. Made my sex ideal, the whole thing. We did step five. We did step six and seven. Immediately, I went home for an hour, got quiet, did exactly what the book said. Did step seven. Step eight, made my list. Step nine, made my amends, the ones that had to be made immediately. I did the ones that were, there were some living amends. People were tired of hearing, I'm sorry, or I was wrong. I had to actually live differently, which I did, and I will uh, share something with you shortly. And then, um, get, and then 10, continue to take personal inventory. I'm staying on this, on this uh, experience of looking at myself and, and exactly what happens. It tells me um, I do four things. I continue to watch selfishness, dishonesty, resentment, and fear. When they crop up, when, not if, when, eight, one, I ask God to remove it. God, remove this fear. Remove this resentment. Remove this anger. Remove this irritability. Remove this judgment. Remove whatever it is. Remove this selfishness. I talk to someone about it. Usually write a little bit, column, do some columns on it, and then call a recovered person. If I harmed anyone, make amends, and then, and then go help someone else. And then I live in step 11. I do a prayer and meditation. Here it is. I do exactly what page 86 and 87 say to do. Like people go, what do you do for your prayer meditation? I, I open up the book. This is exactly what I do. On awakening, I say, let me think about the day ahead. God, direct my thinking. Divorce it from self-pity, dishonest, and self-seeking motives. And then I say, separate me from toxic feeling, toxic thinking, toxic food, toxic behavior. Um, uh, I say the first three steps. I say the third step prayer. I say the seventh step prayer. I think about my day, and then I say, God, as I'm thinking about my day, I think, oh, if I'm not sure what to do, please give me inspiration, an intuitive thought, or a decision. I mean, I literally read out of the book. I do exactly what it says out of the book. I do that in the morning. At night, I do exactly the nightly review. When we retire at night, I actually have a, a form on, on my computer, and I just fill in all the boxes with these questions, right? I constructively review my day. I ask myself, was I resentful? If I was, I do some columning on that. I ask myself if I was selfish, was I dishonest, right? I go through all of this, exactly what's in the book. I do have some prayers in my religion, um, and so I do do those prayers because it does say that if we belong to a religious denomination which requires a definite morning devotion, we attend to that. I do do that. I do, um, I do meditate um, for 20, 16 to 20 minutes. Um, that I do in the, usually in the morning. I, and then I say, God, as I go through the t day, please, I call it the iPad. A friend of mine program says iPad, I-P-A-D. I, pause, when agitated or doubtful, right? So I carry my iPad with me, right? I say, God, please help me to pause when agitated or doubtful and ask for the right thought or action. Please remind
please remind me to remind myself to, um, that I'm not, I'm not running the show, humbly saying to myself many times these days, I will be done, right? This is what I do. This is my step 11. I do this every day. Um, I really, I do it every day because it's like my fuel for the day. It keeps me in good, and in, in, it keeps me in good, in fit spiritual condition. This is how I grow, and I'm growing in effectiveness. I don't maintain; I'm growing. And the best part of being a recovered compulsive eater is being able to work with others. And I'm going to end with this, Dr. Bob. And his, can you hear me, Leah? Can you hear me? Yes. Go ahead. Okay. And I'm just going to take care of that noise. Over. Okay. Um, on, on page 180. It says, um, it says here on the bottom, it is most wonderful blessing to be relieved of the terrible curse which with, I, which with I was afflicted, both mentally and physically. My health is good, and I have regained my self-respect and the respect of my colleagues. My home life is ideal, and my business is as good as can be expected in these uncertain times. I spend a great deal of time passing on what I've learned to others who want and need it badly. I do it for four reasons. One, a sense of duty. Two, it is a pleasure. <clears throat> Three, because in doing so, I am paying my debt to the man who took time to pass it on to me. And four, because every time I do it, I take out a little more insurance for myself against the possible slip. Unlike most of our crowd, I did not get over my craving for liquor. This is Dr. Bob speaking, the other co-founder the liquor much during the first two and one half years of abstinence. Okay, he still had the craving, the physical pull. It was almost always with me, but at no time have I been anywhere near yielding. I used to get terribly upset when I saw my friends drink and I could not, but I schooled myself to believe, and though I once had the same privilege, had abused it so frightfully that it was withdrawn. So it doesn't behoove me to squawk about it, for after all, nobody ever had to throw me down and pour liquor down my throat. Nobody ever had to shove the food down my throat. I, you can eat whatever you want. I have a, my husband's not a compulsive eater. I, he can eat whatever he wants. I, it doesn't bother me. Here's a very important thing, and I'm going to end here. If you think you are an atheist, an agnostic, a skeptic, or have any other form of intellectual pride which keeps you from accepting what is in this book, and by the way, this is my words right here. I say this with passion and not judgment. I want, don't, don't let my passionate, loud, intense, the way I'm speaking right now sound like I'm judgmental um, or I think everybody needs to do it this way. It's just my passion for my experience. Um, if you think you're a, an agnostic, an atheist, a skeptic, or of any other form of intellectual pride which keeps you from accepting what is in this book, I feel sorry for you. If you still think you are strong enough to beat the game alone, that is your affair. But if you really and truly want to quit liquor, quit drinking liquor for good or keep eating for good and all and sincerely feel that you must have some help, those are the two requirements here, right? If you want to quit for good and you know that you need help and you're willing to get the help, we know that we have an answer for you. It never fails if you go about it with one half the zeal you have been in the habit of showing when you were getting another drink. Your Heavenly Father will never let you down. Thank you so much for the privilege to share on this line today, and um, I'll pass. Thank you very much, Chaya, for sharing your experience, Fence.
and hope with us, telling your story of transformation with all of us on the line this morning. Now we open the floor for any questions that you might have for Chaya this morning on anything that she shared related to the program of recovery. You can do so by pressing star 1 to unmute. Hi. Good morning. Hi, this is Helen. I'm calling from Pittsburgh. This is my first call I've ever... Welcome. Helen? Welcome to A Vision for You. Do you have a question for Haya this morning? We might have lost her, Leah. <laughs> yes. Okay. Uh, Helen, we welcome you back. Star one to unmute. Perhaps you got muted. Let's just give Helen a moment here. Try again, Helen. Uh, the reception is... Uh, it's difficult to hear you. Could I get Kaya's number? Now we hear you. Go ahead, Kaya, uh, your number, please. Yes, absolutely. Um, my name is Kaya. It's C-H-A-Y-A. I live in Central Time. My phone number is area code 972-740-6306. And Helen, welcome, Thank welcome, you. welcome. I'll repeat it. Thank you. You're welcome. I'm just going to repeat it one more time for anybody else. Repeat that phone number. Yes, 972-740-6306. And what's the name of the person? Chaya, C-H-A-Y-A. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank Thank you. Anyone with a question this morning, star one to unmute. Question for Chaya. Hi, Leah. This is Brian from New York. Hi, Brian. Go ahead. Am I coming in clear? Yes, you are. Okay. Uh, thank you, Chaya. It was wonderful. Um, um, there's one question. It's it's it's, it's always been uh, on my head, and I, I like the you know the religious sentiment I heard. Um, I'm a religious person, but this is something that's been on my mind. If God can help somebody recover um, and lift obsession, why can't um, God heal a compulsive overeater and make him into a regular person that he can go back to eating those same foods again? If he can do this miracle, why can't he do that miracle? And 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 it, from what it seems is that that's one of the tenets of the big book, is that that's one thing that's not going to change. We're always going to be have this allergy. We're going to have this alcoholism, food addiction. Just wanted to know what your take on this question might be. Great. Um, thank you, Brian, for the question. And uh, it's so funny because I was, um, I'm actually sitting by a beautiful lake. I ran, I usually run Sunday morning. My little secret is I run during the, during the Vision for You special edition meeting. I run around the lake. And uh, this morning I ran before my meeting. And um, so I'm sitting by the lake in my car. And um, I was running this morning and I was, speaking to uh, a sponsee of mine, a woman that I'm taking to the steps, and we were reading uh, through the book, and, um, and we were discussing this very point. Um, the truth is, this is my belief, okay? 
my personal belief is absolutely God can. If God wanted to make me be able to eat sugar today with no impunity, God could do that. God could do anything. But I truly believe that um, that this was my vehicle to um, to being able to reach the potential that God has for me. Meaning, everybody has um, everybody has in my in my life experience, um, both personally and professionally. <clears throat> um, I know that personally in my own life, in, in my life with other people, in my OA life, right, in the 12-step room for 26 years, um, in my professional life, <clears throat> working with people in terms of helping them with their life, everyone has stuff and everyone has a vehicle to, um, to, to spiritual growth. Some people pay attention to it and some people don't. And I feel like this was the vehicle that God gave me, that through my disease of compulsive eating, I was able to gain a relationship with God and enlarge my relationship with God on a daily basis and be a servant of God. You know, I'm not, um, so could God take that away in a second if God wanted to? Absolutely. Um, but I don't believe, you know, I, I, obviously I can't think, I'm not God, so I can't think like God, but I don't know that, um, that would be in my best interest, right? Obviously, if I didn't need this, he wouldn't give it to me. So I don't know if I'm answering the question exactly. The other piece of it is, um, is that there's a certain level of accepting what is and then working with it. You know, someone said to me, um, you know, you get dealt your hand and life is how you play it. And, but what I understand is, unlike a deck of cards where, you know, you're just randomly getting your cards, God, as I understand God, um, and we do talk about God in this program, but it is, again, not a religious one, speaking to everybody here. Um, God, as I understand God, does not deal randomly that I get exactly what I need to fulfill my role in this world. And, you know, if you're not sure what your purpose is, you know, it tells us, the big book tells us, our pro, you know, the, the, in our preamble, our, our primary purpose is to abstain and to help other compulsive eaters to um, their sobriety, to, to, to become recovered as well. So I have, this is part of my purpose. I have other purposes that I've, that I've been able to define and, and, and discover in this process. So can he take it away? Sure, absolutely. But um, that's what, what I did, though, which I couldn't on my own, was get lifted out of, the, of that quicksand, of the morass, of, the, of the, the, the hole that I was in that I could not climb out of on my own, and that I was delivered from. And so I don't need to be able to eat sugar to be an effective human being, but I need to be able to function and grow and be out of my self-centeredness and my selfishness and my dishonesty and fear. That I needed to be rid of in order to be able to serve God, and that is what God delivered from me. Um, and so I don't really even care anymore. It doesn't matter to me. And 
the, a, a recovered state is, is take it or leave it. Thanks. Thanks for stopping me, Leah. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you, Brian, for the question. Let's move on to another question, star one to unmute. Hi, it's Sarah Grace. May I ask a question? Yes, of course, Sarah Grace. Go ahead. Well, actually, I want to, first of all, make a comment. Thank you so very much. This has been extremely useful and helpful and and, um, enlightening to me. I just really appreciate your sharing your experience, strength, and hope, and there's a lot that I could relate to. And my question is what it sounded like to me is that, um, you know, you have grown through working the steps um, with a recovered sponsor, you know, you have grown exponentially, emotionally, spiritually, and physically. And really the, the physical manifestation of your disease has been lifted in that you're not, you know, that you've chosen what foods are inappropriate and what foods are appropriate. Um, and that's what you focus on as far as your abstinence, um, but that you don't need to weigh and measure um, because that aspect has been, been, you know, lifted and it's the continual working in 10, 11, and 12, which keeps you on the straight and narrow and um, away from the compulsion or obsession to, to be eating inappropriately. Do I have that right? Um, actually, I'm glad you brought that up. I actually do um, uh, weigh and measure my food almost exclusively, um, I, I, and I want to just say that I want thank you so much for, for the question and, and for your comment. I, I, not did I just grow, I want to make it really clear that I actually was transformed. Um, I am a different person than I was, um, uh, before this, this, this experience that I went through over this last year. Um, I react differently. I, um, in terms of, of, in, in my life. In so many ways, I, I, it, it's unbelievable. Um, I'm just, I'm just floored at, at the way I, I called my, my, my sponsor the other day. I have like a, a couple of recovered people in my life. My sponsor, the woman who took through the steps, I'm not even sure if she's in the program anymore, which is interesting. It was just like a, an angel that landed, helped me, and then flew away. But um, I have a couple of women that are my kind of my recovered. Uh, sponsors that I that I turned to, and uh, I said, I cannot believe the way I just reacted and just responded to a person in my life in such a loving, loving, compassionate way that in the past I would have put up my own selfish, self-centered um, wall, and instead I was able to, to 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 respond with such love and compassion. It was really it was it was just unbelievable. I was like, oh my God, I've been transformed. Um, which is why I actually changed my name at the beginning of the summer, went to my name, which means life, as opposed to my American name, which meant judgment. But instead, um, I do actually weigh and measure my food almost all the time. It does not define my abstinence, meaning if I am in a situation where my uh, I'm either not able to measure, I don't have my scale with me, or something came up or what have you, it, it doesn't define my abstinence. I have general portions of what I get. But weighing, measuring, you know, um, you know, one of our members always says, you know, how free do you want to be? It just gives me tremendous freedom. I happen to like being um, on the lower end of my weight uh, range. I think there's a normal range for my height and my weight and, uh, you know, for my height and body size. And I like to be on the lower end. The weighing and measuring keeps me, you know, in, a, in my clothes size, all the same clothes size all the time, what have you. 
Um, and I do believe that if I didn't weigh and measure, I probably would weigh more. And um, but I would would not I cannot eat certain foods absolutely, and I do not eat uh, in between my meals. Um, I have a, a general structure to my food plan, um, and weighing and measuring is absolutely part of it. Um, and and again, there are very specific things that I absolutely do not have. And sometimes I'm learning along the way about foods that not not they're addictive for me, but they just don't feel good, you know. Um, so, um, no, I do, weigh, I do weigh and measure my food, but it does not define whether or not I'm abstinent or not. Because Thanks. I, I Thanks. have a life. But some people I, must I, do it. I, some people must I, and I, some I, people I, don't. Well, I want to say thank you for that clarification. Um, I really do appreciate it and that you're transformed. I mean, that, that's beautiful, beautiful. And I am working with a recovered step study sponsor right now. And I will say that, you know, um, just one last comment, is that, you know, it's amazing to me because there are a number of these big book step study groups, and some of them absolutely frown upon weighing and measuring, and some of them, you know, it's a completely individual thing. And I find that weighing and measuring supports my well-being and freedom, and, um, you know, I feel freer, but it's not, as you say, it's not, you know, a definition of who I am. Thank you, I pass. Thank you, Sarah Grace, for the question. Anyone else with a question for Chaya this morning on anything she shared or related to the program of recovery? Rose. Rose, go ahead. Yes, this is Lauren. Thank you. Rose and then Lauren. Go ahead, Rose. Thanks, Waya. Thank you so much for your service. And Haya, thank you for your qualification. It was um it was terrific. Um my question is specifically um what your thoughts are or experience are on um I'm not bulimic or anorexic and um I'm wondering um what you think about a person who is not uh who didn't manifest the food addiction in those areas. Um if you could possibly be of service or help to that type of um, food addict? It's a great question. Hi, Rose. Good to hear your voice. Um, it's a really good question. Um, so when it came to bulimia, um, I had to, uh, that was the first layer of my recovery. I didn't really speak a whole lot about that, but um I went to uh, a meeting in Los Angeles many years ago where I could tell you that there were movie stars, you know, throwing up in the bathroom. Um, and uh, it is not a glamorous aspect of our disease, trust me. Um, but what I was told was, um, and interestingly enough, this sponsor actually did take me through the steps um, on the bulimia. It was trust gravity and digestion and I had to absolutely, positively, under all circumstances, abstain from the bulimia, first and foremost. And that meant for me that no matter what went down my throat, it stayed there. And there is something to, uh, so a lot of times people um, try to recover from bulimia by going on a food plan. But the problem is, is that there's a reservation there because if they end up going off their food plan and binging, they, they end up throwing up again. So for me, it was a layer, a first layer of the, you know, Lori always talks about, you know, kind of the layers of his abstinence, how he peeled away the layers. 
this was a layer of abstinence that I had to get really clean about and work and work the steps. I'm not saying that someone has to do it separately, but it has to be that that's the first and foremost for me. That I had, just like the doctor's opinion, you had to abstain 100% from alcohol. I had to abstain 100% from the bulimia. That meant no diuretics, no laxatives, no throwing up, and a proportion around my exercise. It couldn't be in response to, you know, to my eating. And then if I ate, you know, a dozen donuts, I had to sit with those donuts. And I'll tell you, there's nothing like sitting with food you ate after you're, you know, being a bulimic and not throwing it up. That is wow, that is a very different experience. So that's how I, that's how the bulimia had to go, was first and foremost, that was the first layer. And then I could address the the food. And that's exactly what I said. I said, okay, God, I'm not going to throw up. You help me. And then when you're ready, you show me how to deal with the food. That's, that's, that was how my experience went. As far as whether somebody, you know, it's just like I feel like the food has to be in its place. And then we work the rest of the steps. So if a person can speak with somebody about what it means to be abstinent from bulimia and that's clear, then who is taking them through the steps? It's the steps. It's the same steps, right? So um, could they help them? I think absolutely. But I do think understanding and being able to speak with people who have actually been through it, just like being a compulsive eater, there's something, something about it, right? There is something about talking to somebody and saying, I know what it's like to eat a gallon of ice cream and not throw up. Um, there will come a day to a bulimic where she overeats or he overeats and has to sit with it. And it's a good thing. Just like the book tells us, it may take, you know, sometimes a bad case of the jitters is a good thing because it gives us full knowledge of our situation. Sometimes, you know, eating, overeating and having to sit with it and not throwing up will give us a good knowledge of our situation. So I think, I think both somebody can help them, but I do think that speaking with someone who is uh, a, a recovered bulimic can certainly give them some, some uh, experience, strength, and hope. That's Thank you, great. Rose, for the question. Thank you. Let's move on to Lauren now, please. Lauren, star one to unmute. Thank you. Um, hi, I'm Lauren. I'm a compulsive overeater from Pittsburgh. And um, I I was wondering uh, if, and thank you so much for giving your time to, to share your story this morning. I was wondering if you had any amends to make to people that you were currently living with and how you how you just if you if you had um a lot of fear in those first other amends and, and how you just kind of dealt with them um if you could talk about that thank you sure thank you for the question i just want to um clarify um like um can you be a little more specific in terms of what do you mean by people I'm living with? Like, ha- like a direct amend, like going up to them, speaking to them about it, or a living amend yeah. where I actually have to act differently? Yeah, a, um, a direct amend in particular, because um, right now one of mine is, uh, is 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 my roommate, and I, and part of the amends is you know 
I stole things. I, you know, mm-hmm, ate her mm-hmm. food, things like that. So this is a different amends than other ones I've had to make um, because I, yeah. I, yeah, so thank you so much. No problem. So um, <clears throat> I what comes to mind is an amend that I made actually a while back, um, not in this, uh, this time going through the amends, but the first time I went through the big book and I, and I did my amends, I, um, I went, had to tell my aunt that I stole money from her. I stole money. <laughs> I used to steal, you know, I would just go into my aunt's wallet, my mother's wallet, and my father's wallet. Like, I'd just take money from their wallets, you know. And it was very, very scary. Um, I also did steal, steal food from roommates, and I made amends to them, trying to think exactly what that was like. Um, you know, I think that there's a reason why step eight and step nine are separated. Um, and my experience has always been to um, do what the book says, which is, you know, there's, it, it talks a lot about um, uh, every situation is different. And so we talk a lot in our meeting about going to some other recovered people. And I, I always share to speak to several recovered people. Because, you know, I'll tell a sponsee, don't just go by what I think. You know, talk to a couple of other recovered people. See what, they're, what they say because, um, you know, what is the best way to handle a situation? And, and prayer, you know, because step eight is putting the, making the list and becoming willing. And step nine is actually making the amend. Now, people do eat when they don't make their amend. Like it does, they're the warning signs of is when we don't do step five and if we don't do step nine, um, and we don't carry the message, those are kind of the three points where they really warn us about, um, you know, going back into our disease again. So I really would encourage anyone on their amends to actually, like, make them as soon as they can. Um, but in terms of how, what, what needs to be said, um, uh, you know, it's, it's not an I'm sorry, it's I was wrong, I did this, I did this, I did this, but praying for um, the willingness. You know, I've had to pray to be willing, to be willing, to be willing, to be willing. Um, And then also a certain amount of courage um, that is in the face of fear. Now, I just have to, I I cannot let fear run my life. And certainly we have a way of dealing with fear through our our inventory. And you can do, you know, you can even do the the fear, you know, um, columns on making the amends. I mean, we have endless tools within these these steps four through nine are just incredible tools that we have. So um, prayer, speaking with other people about it, and then courage to, to move forward with, with that aim in mind, the objective, which is to recover. And I'll tell you, the freedom comes, so much freedom comes after making those, those nine step amends. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. Um, I don't know if that helped. I don't know if that answered. Um, okay, good. Thanks. Hi, this is Berta. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater in Illinois. I'd like to ask a question. Yes. Thank you, Lauren. Go ahead, Berta. Hi. Hi. Um, I had a question. Um, first of all, I have been through all the 12 steps, and, and I'm currently doing service, and I have experienced the promises in Step 10, and I've lost over 200 pounds, and I'm not at my normal weight yet. And my question is, I've heard several different ideas about uh, working the program as a recovered person, and I have heard in the past people say, I live in steps 10, 11, and 12, and I understand that. But yet I have a sponsor who uh, 
is encouraging me to work steps 1 through 12, and then when I get to 12, go 1 through 12 and continue on. I don't have a problem doing that. And uh, I've heard said, well, after 20 years, you can live in 10, 11, 12. And, but if you don't work all the steps, 1 through 12, uh, consistently and just keep doing that, then you will eventually relapse. And I was under the impression that since I work steps one, two, three in my morning meditation and prayers, and that I work steps, uh, you know, four through nine with my tenth step, and then I live in 11 and 12 with my conscious contact with God and service work, I thought I was okay. And now I'm wondering, am I misinformed? Am I experiencing complacency? Because right now I've ha- I've experienced that transformation, and my life in OA is completely different and absolutely wonderful. And then I sometimes feel guilty and think, well, should I be going back and actually doing the writing and re- really intensively working all 12 steps? Or mm-hmm. is it okay to live in 10, 11, and 12? I just wondered what you thought about that and what your experience is. That's, Great, that's thanks, Berta. Yeah, thanks for the question. Um, so here's here's my take on it. Um, step one is a is is a conclusion. Step two is a conclusion, and step three is a decision to go on with the re- remaining steps. So I made that conclusion one. I made conclusion two, and I made a decision. And so I live in that decision. I did steps four, five, six, seven, eight, and nine. And I continue to live in steps 10, 11, and 12. Now, step 12, uh, step 10 takes me to 4 through 9 all the time, right? right. I, um, and step 12, if, if I'm doing step 12, my head is in that book all the time. Yeah. So I am experiencing um, the, the, by working with other people, it keeps me keeps my keeps me green in terms of re- reading over and over and taking other people through. So I I this is my my opinion. The book doesn't talk about sponsorship, so you know specifically. So I can't um, you know say what the book says about how we sponsor. But I can say this that for many years, and I know people that have been sponsoring people where they call their food in and they talk to them for 15 minutes every morning and they've been doing that for years and then they don't have room for new people because they have people that they've been sponsoring for a gazillion years, well I'm exaggerating, for five years or whatever that are taking up those those time slots, right? My feeling, this is my experience, that when I, and I heard this, I can't remember, one, one Sunday morning, one of the speakers, uh, I can't remember which one it was, maybe it was Harlan, um, said that that spot, when I, once I take somebody through the steps, once I, when I finished going through the steps with my sponsor and I started sponsoring, I then replaced that time that I was calling her and reading with somebody that I was taking through. And now I was calling her when I had 10-step stuff that I needed to, you know, talk about and work on that it was, it was that I was filling that time with working with others. Working with others is the work of the steps. Going through the steps enables us to be able to take other people through the steps. The work is, the, the book mentions the work many times. The work is taking others through the steps. It's being a, a pointer, 
a, a tour guide, a light post, you know, uh, a lighthouse, you know, and, and, and helping guiding others through. And so I feel very strongly that my, I, I take, I, I reiterate the conclusion every morning that I'm powerless over food, alcohol, people, places, things, situations. Life is unmanageable by me without you. And I've come to believe that you can restore me to sanity and I want to turn my will and my life over to your care. And I do step three. That's my step one, two, and three that I do every day. And by working with others, I'm staying in step one. Now, sometimes I do have a, a more elaborate step four that I might need to do, step 10 that I may need to do. It may be a little more elaborate than, than something quick on the spot, um, which might look like a, a, a fourth step, but it's no longer a fourth step. It's a 10th step. And getting, you know, who, who cares? It's, the bottom line is that I made a decision in step three to continue this way of life. Step four through nine got me to the place called recovered. And I stay in that space by enlarging my spiritual condition through steps 10, 11, and 12, 12 being taking someone through the steps, which naturally keeps me learning and reading about the conclusion we make in step one and two. So I hope that helps. Yeah, I, I, I completely agree with that. I just wanted to know from as many people as I can, so I've been asking people this question, and that's why I wanted to hear it from you, because I agree that working with people and having sponsees, I've always got my face in the big book, like you said, and through them, even though they're, even if they may be working the steps for the first time, through them I'm constantly having, uh, you know, the big book says more will be revealed, and mm -hmm. even though I may not be working each of the steps like I did the first couple times, I am still having more revealed through working with my sponsees and reviewing the steps over and over again with them. So mm -hmm. that was very helpful to me. Thank you so much for answering the question and for your service. Pleasure. Thank you for the, for the question. Anyone else this morning with questions related to the program of recovery or anything that Haya shared? I would like some, I would like to ask a question. Steve, good morning. One moment, please. And who else did I hear? My name is Jamie. I have a question. Janie? Uh-huh. Okay, so Steve and then Janie, please. Thank you. Thank you. Hi there. I, hi, I, I was wondering if you can uh, clarify. I'm, I think I'm weak on the nighttime review of the day. I mean, the morning is fine, but I find myself not really... Do you have any kind of structure? Do you write it down, or can you uh, 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 talk about that nighttime review? What you do. Sure, you. sure. Steve, what I do, if you open up your book, if you have it with you, um, I do on page 86 where it says, When We Retire at Night. So every night I, um, I write down, I happen to type it on my computer. I have a, a little form on my computer, and I say, was I resentful? And then I fill in the blank. Was I resentful? Yes, I was resentful at blah, 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 because blah, blah, blah. And then I do the four columns. And then there's a box, was I selfish? And then I think about, was I selfish today? Well, maybe I was. You know, yesterday my son wasn't feeling well, and I walked to synagogue. And I thought, well, maybe I should have stayed home. But, I, you know, I was getting my husband. So, you know, maybe, you know like, I, like that kind of thing. I think about, was I selfish? Was I dishonest? 
Was I afraid? I do any of the, the, the um, inventory type uh, work on that if I need to. And then I ask myself, do I owe an apology? Um, it helps for me to do it in a, in a written way. Um, is there anything I need to speak to someone about? Um, was I kind and loving toward all? And I think about that, and then I'll describe where I was at with that. Is there anything I could have done better? Yeah, I could have gotten more rest. I could have fed my kids earlier instead of making them wait, blah, 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 blah. Um, was I thinking of what I can do for others, of what I can pack into the stream of life, and then I'll talk about, you know, the experiences I had with my sponsees that day or a client that I was working with or my mom or, or what have you. And, um, and then I, uh, I also add in uh, a few other things. Uh, did I record my expenses? Because one of my living amends to my husband is having all my deposits and withdrawals documented, so he doesn't have to go, what was that deposit you made three weeks ago? That was it, you know, and I don't have any clue what it was, or what did you buy at Sears the other day? And I have no idea, you know, so I write that down, um, and, and, and I write down um, was uh, my meals, plans, whatever, just some things about my meals, just to, that I like to keep uh, in the front of my mind. Um, and then I say, I ask God's forgiveness, and then I say, is there any corrective measures I need to do? And that's it. That's what I do. It's like, yeah, it's like nothing I, new under the sun. <laughs> I think what I'll do is, is use the writ, I'll type up a written form because I don't do that. that yeah. I'm getting that. I think really that's helpful. what I should do. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you, Steve. Janie, your turn. Okay. Can you hear me? Yes. Okay. Well, I do you think, Kaya, um, I've been taken through the 12 trips rather quickly, but I find that, and I see a lot of growth, but I'm finding that I'm still struggling with food. And I, basically because I followed a very strict food plan for nine months, and then when I made the decision to follow the big book on working the steps, the sponsor that I have automatically said, you don't need a food plan. You just pray before each meal and, um, you know, let God reveal to you what you need to eat and the amount. And I'm still really struggling with that, so I feel like I'm floundering. So I really wouldn't consider myself abstinent. Do you feel like you have to, should I be abstinent if I've worked through the steps and should I be trying to sponsor other people? if I'm still struggling with food? So um, thanks so much for the question and for your honesty. Um, I, the big book is very clear that a person um, needs to be separated from the food uh, before they can be approached uh, and, and go through this process. Um, I think that um, on a personal level, that wouldn't work for me to just pray um, before I eat and then just make it up as I go along. That personally for me would not work on many levels and I do not believe that I would be free. Um, so um, I think this is where I think um, in my opinion um, we get uh, a little... Um, we step over the line with uh, what people should be doing with their food by telling them 
what we think they should be doing with their food instead of asking them, um, you know, what their what their problems are, what you know, and their their histories, and and either working again, working with a professional or that really understands food addiction, that can really help uh, decipher what is uh, the the problem for you. Because again, it could be that you know there are people that don't measure their food, there are people that that measure every morsel, it's, and everything in between. So um, I do believe the book the book is very clear that we need to be separated from the substances. Um, uh, in order to go through the steps and be recovered, um, and um, and I'm happy to talk to you offline about it if if you want to um, take the conversation after the you know later on after the call not to just you know just because I could go on and on and on about this, but I think that um, everyone has to concede to their innermost selves what their you know what the, and and there's layers of it you know more is revealed as you go along you know what what there might be things that you didn't realize were a problem, but you got to get the basic problems out of the way, and they can't be, it, it, it can't be on the table anymore, um, because that's like a, an alcoholic, you know, drinking a little whiskey and then taking people through the steps. It doesn't really make sense. So well, you're um, right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm so gonna. I'm drinking whiskey. <laughs> if you're drinking whiskey right now, you might, you know, your whiskey, quote unquote, you know, probably, probably not. Um, uh, an ideal thing to be taking others, but I will say this: our journey is our journey. I am grateful that the the, the ninth step promises do say, no matter how far down the scale we have gone, we will see how our experience can benefit others. And so, what? Although I think in OA it should always say, no matter how up the scale we went. But anyway, um, the my experience will benefit others. So whatever our journey is, whatever whether it means you have to go through the steps again because you weren't really abstinent, whatever it is, that journey will, once you get to that place called recovered and you do take people through the steps, you will be able, your experience will benefit others. And that, you know, my choice is either to be to work for food or work for God, to be a slave to food or to be a servant of God. And um, it is much more uh, pleasant, pleasurable, satisfying to be a servant of God than to be a slave to food. Um, so whatever, you, whatever your journey, however your journey took you, um, wherever it took you and wherever it can take you, when you get to that place, um, you'll know you're there and you'll continue to grow, but you'll... But, but being able to be of service of others is really the gift. Well, I appreciate it, and I will be calling you if this afternoon is a good time because I would like to discuss it with you further, but thank you so much. You're welcome. Yeah, try me. Leave a message and call me back if you don't hear from me. Just everyone out there, if anybody is going to call, we had a flood. We're dealing with reconstruction. I have five kids, one of them sick. Like, it's all, you know, it, it's a little crazy, but just try me, and I'll, and I'll hopefully we'll, we'll be able to speak soon. Okay, thank, thank you. you. Thank you, Janie, for the question. Anyone else before we wrap up this morning's meeting? Any other questions related to the program of recovery? Hi, it's Amy W. from California. I have a quick question. Go ahead, Amy. Get it in. Hi. Good morning. Thank you, Haya, for your service. Thank you, Leah. Haya, I wanted to know how you dealt then with your home local meetings in terms of did you stay active? Or did you try to start a big book meeting? Did you try to transform one to become a big book meeting? How did you deal with your local OA meetings? 
That's a great question. So, um, the meetings locally, I go to to carry the message, um, which is really what a meeting is for. I, I feel like meetings are cheerleading sessions for the newcomer. Um, I feel like that's why what we're supposed to be doing at meetings, that they need to hear people are recovered. And so when I go to a local meeting, um, I was in New Jersey this summer for the whole summer, and I went to a lot of the local meetings, and I, I shared uh, at the at the announcements, I shared about this amazing phone meeting, OA phone meeting that's on the phone every single morning and Sunday mornings, and there's recorded, and there's a website, you know. And um, I volunteered to speak. I got asked to speak locally here in Dallas. I don't go to the local meetings very often, um, and I, I, I've only been back in town for a month and a half, and it's all been flood-related, so I haven't even had a minute to go to one. But um, when I do, um, I really try to share. I always use the big book as a reference point, um, and, uh, and, and I really go to carry the message um, as a, as a, because that's, that's our job, because our primary purpose is to carry the message. So um, I go to carry the message, and um, that's, been, that's been helpful. I think it's been, I think it's, it's, it's been helpful. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thank you, Amy. Anyone else? Hi, this is Reggie. I have a question. Hi, Reggie. Go ahead. Hi, good morning, hi, and thank you so much, very much for your service. Um, I've uh, been in OA for many, many years, and I've worked the steps uh, many times, But I and I've been out of OA as well, and I don't think it was until recently when I started listening to this meeting and some of the uh, recordings that um, I really got the, uh, the, first, the first step in terms of the allergy and the mental obsession. So it, my life feels very different as a result of that. I'm also in another program where I am working the steps through the big book. Uh, and uh, I'm wondering um, I'm wondering if in doing that, in working the steps in another program that I feel is very sufficient big book work, if what you think about doing the steps through OA again and this process or if taking the first three steps in OA and continuing the step work that I'm doing would be sufficient. Okay, just let me let me just make sure I I understand the question, Reggie. So the question is, you've gone through the steps in OA already. You're recovered. Yes. Okay. I know. No, no, no. I'm not recovered. No, I just I, what I said is I just feel like recently since I've been listening to this meeting, which is just a few weeks, that I really got really got for the first time in many many years of uh, program the allergy and obsession part. Yeah. You know, once the my my opinion my opinion and somewhat well, my experience was going through the steps in AA did not um, do it for me from a food point of view because I really fully didn't understand the the the, the first step from the food, um, so it didn't it didn't really help me get clear about the food. I think if you're if someone is very clear about what is and what is and is not. Uh, you know, the step one is understanding um, what our alcohol is. And so if, you, if a person totally knows very much so what there is clear on, the, on what 
the alcohol is when it comes to a compulsive eater, and that is you are abstaining from that. That is clear. You have a clear um, plan to support abstaining. You know, an alcoholic doesn't need a plan really to abstain from alcohol because you just don't drink the alcohol. But a, food, a person, so I feel like a plan of eating is is a way of supporting, is a way to eat, which I need to do in order to live, that supports my abstinence, what I need to abstain from, right? It's built around what I need to abstain from. So if someone knows exactly what that is and it is clear, it's off the table, and then you, you're running through the steps, I don't know that it matters. It, the, the, it, it's out of the big book. It's all the same steps. The only thing that mm -hmm. changes is the, is the substance. Um, mm -hmm. But I guess what I, what I would say is that we, you know, we, do, um, we do need to build, and this is not a big book thing, but, uh, but just I understand it now. And, and I do think it, it, to some degree it talks about our thinking, you know, we we do we do have it's that actually it is in the book because it says we have to smash this home again and again we have to drill it in right it tells us over and over certain things why because we have to replace our old thinking with different thinking about about the disease right and about the problem more about alcoholism says it again we have to smash this home over and over again and again right so I do think that coming to a meeting regularly like a vision for you where we're smashing home these ideas over and over and over again. It's definitely conducive while one is going through the steps, um, especially if one is going through the steps with a with a sponsor from an you know with a recovered person from another program where maybe they're not going to be uh, focused as much on it. So the meeting will not get you recovered, but the meeting will help make new paths, you know, new brain connections, um, new language, you know, um, about compulsive eating. So I would say going to a meeting would be really, you know, just being continually feeding yourself that information will, will, would help. And, 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 yeah. Okay. Okay. No, that's, that's great. That's, because that's I my opinion. Yeah. Thank you. I appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you, Reggie, for the question. Thank you to all who posed questions this morning. And of course, thank you, Haya, for carrying the message of recovery to all of us this morning on the line. We appreciate your time and effort this morning. And I'm going to close a vision for you in the way that we always close our meeting, and that is with the reading from page 164 in the chapter entitled A Vision for You. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you. Until then. <laughs>